The following episode contains strong language, mentions of drug use, violence and suicide. Discretion is advised. Conversations on the Margins is a Go Loud original podcast. I'm writing to you, sweetheart. Is it cold? Aaron is really a special human being. He is extremely intellectual, like extremely intellectual. We decided to go and leave Weefield Prison at the end of all the interviews and we decided that we should travel to Lochan House in Cavan to interview Aaron. When we travelled to go into Lochan House, it was about a two-hour drive from Dublin and it's an open prison. It's the part of the journey in a person's life when they begin to see, I suppose, the potential end to their prison life. And... To get to that point, you will have had to go on an incredible journey of learning, therapeutic interventions, reflection, everything. And Aaron, I think, really perpetuates all of those principles that the prison system says it stands on in relation to rehabilitation, progression, thinking about your career and your future and all of those things. And... When we arrived, Aaron invited us into the coffee shop that he is the barista in, in Cavan, in Lochan House. So you're in the mountains, you're in a nice cavern scenery, they have a beautiful garden, they have an amazing meditation space. If you go to our Instagram, you'll be able to see a picture of the meditation space there. And what is the most beautiful thing about that meditation space? is actually the artwork around the walls. There's like this rainforest kind of painted onto the wall. And then on the other end, there's this golden Buddha. And that's painted by one of the men in Lochan House. And it's an absolutely amazing mural. And it just shows what these men are capable of if they were given half the chance when they leave prison to be able to actually be employed into doing this stuff that they do while they're there. There's also like a running track not like an actual running track but like there's a track they follow that's 5k and it kind of brings you up the mountain and around by the lake and after I interviewed Aaron at first he was nervous and me and Aaron have got to know each other a good bit over the last while working on stuff like prison reform and he wasn't more nervous actually than I expected him to be I think he really just wants to do well and he wants to present himself well so he's nervous about that but he actually was shivering like for the first half hour of the interview and it reminded me of when I first started having a public persona and I would be interviewed or I would have to go on to the TV and it was so new to me that my body would actually have this adrenaline reaction where I would start shaking with the cold even when it wasn't cold and I think his life and his future and his hopes mean so much to him that, that that nerves like was literally causing a bit of a shake in the first half an hour of the interview. But then he just settled down into the swing of it and he has an amazing humour and an amazing intellect. And he actually later on, when he was shown us around with the governor, Leiden, he brought us over to this field where there's this big, beautiful tree. And he's just like, that's sometimes where I go and meditate under that tree over there. He's just really beautiful and really smart and, yeah, was just a little bit more nervous than I thought he would be when we first started. You're my humming.
First of all, thanks for seeing me this morning and for making me coffee in the coffee shop of Lachlan. Is it Lachlan or... Lachlan. Lachlan. I always say Lachlan so for some I. reason. So do most people, I yeah. think. So Lachlan House. Lachlan House, yeah. Yeah, which is obviously um, an open prison that we're in here today. And most of the podcasts um, that we've done have... All the podcasts that we've done have been in Wefield Prison, apart from um, the governor and... DIPRT and we'll hopefully have Karen on from the IPS as well. We've done them in studio. So this is our first kind of trip outside of that system. But I think it's good because I think it might give um, listeners um, an idea of the progression, I suppose, because they would have heard from lads who are really engaged in the educational process uh, in Wefield Prison and beginning that journey then with the open learning. And I suppose for some of them, I'm sure they're hoping then to be able to move on to open prison and and look, I suppose, to the future in terms of of, of release. So I think it's good that we do have an episode from here because that's a a part of the journey as well, you know. Um, Hopefully the last part of the journey. Hopefully the last part of the journey and never have to do it again. No, No, please God, no. I know, I know. Um, I think to give you a flavour, I suppose, of the podcast so far, um. It's been it was it's been difficult in the sense that for for, <laughs> for them it's difficult because they're in prison. But I think I spent probably about two days after having all the conversations just crying in my bed, like trying to compress and decompress and um, just the sadness, I suppose, of it all. And you don't want to point out the sadness of it all sometimes to people when they're in the situation because the neck of you like because you're going home and having your life, you know, how dare, how dare I be the one that's upset, you know. Um, but and, and it's also not fair to point out to people maybe how tough or hard their life is because they'll ha- that's 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 their process and journey to go through. And, you know, um, sometimes I often regret even become educated <laughs> because you become super co- conscious yeah. and aware of everything that can be messed up in life structurally and in communities like ours and I know you grew up in a community similar to mine and I suppose I think that's probably where we should start in 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 your journey and I'd love to just know a little bit about who you were as 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 a child hey, life was good I was as you say born into an area that wasn't so great in terms of employment and, and advantage. We were always scraping and, and kind of, I suppose, you didn't notice at the time when you were young that you hadn't got a lot until you get a little bit older and you realise that everyone else has a lot more. But as I say, we, there was five of us, four girls and myself, so my sisters were amazing. They were always looking after me, always trying to, I suppose, keep me um, contained in a sense. I was, I was a young boy and, and wild as was most of the boys around that place. And I I was reasonably good until I hit certain points in school. At nine, I think it was nine, my father left. So I was then in the house with all girls, but it was this kind of notion of being the man of the house at nine, nearly 10 years of age. And I thought to be the man of the house was to be protector in a sense, unaware that that I was in no position to protect anyone, not, not even myself. So I was very, I suppose um, with the older sisters, there was two older and two younger with me in the middle. And with the older sisters hitting 13 and 14 and they're kind of 
doing their thing with dating and, and boys and stuff and I'm a little kind of 11 year old telling them that they can't see him and they can't do this and inevitably I think it was a small little bit of power that I thought I had within the household that then kind of became a bit of a problem for me outside. Okay. And because I had no brothers, I'd be fighting and, and of course only fighting for myself with no backup as, as some of the older, or the other guys would have older brothers that would then beat me up or, or they'd always have someone to back them up. And I'd have my sisters and, and the last thing you wanted was your sister going out and beating someone up for you. <laughs> I you know, know you should ask me brother, he doesn't like that one either. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, because then you're going to get teased and, and, and taunted further and it's just get more problems. But my sisters were all amazing. I mean, they, they really looked after me. The older one, my mother would have worked uh, trying to support us. She worked two jobs. One was in the local chipper. So the local chipper, I suppose, was the main kind of hub where, where people would hang around, particularly the Bowsies. And I then, of course, going around to get free food off my mother would, would meet all the generations of Bowsies from a very young age up until I was 14 or 15 and then hanging around the shops myself. Of course, my mother wouldn't have wanted that, but it was, it was hard for her because she's working all day and, and the sisters then, I'm kind of as I say, power tripping that they can't tell me what to do and I'm the man of the house. and It, it was a good upbringing, I suppose, given the circumstances we had. And it didn't really cause any problems until I hit teenagers and then criminality was seeking in and it just it kind of went downhill from there. It just grabbed you. Mm. When when you were in school, um, was there subjects you enjoyed or was did you did you get on well in school? I did in the early school in, uh, I suppose, from first class upwards. I don't remember much about the, the lower school. Uh, but from first to sixth, I would have been reasonably good, well-behaved and, and, and great at the curriculum. First year, as I say, my father had left kind of around that same time. I was going into first year and I just lost interest. I lost interest in school. I was merely going to school to meet my friends. I had no interest in then engaging in the curriculum or in, in any kind of style of, of teaching or, or learning. I just didn't care. Mm. So that, that idea that you had to be the the man of the house, um, was that stuff that you picked up from what people were saying or was it something that you just internally felt should happen in the absence of your dad? Yeah, I guess I suppose around that time it, it seemed that, 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 that the man was the man and, and, you know, I suppose in a perception of women... Kind of, you, the men had to provide, they had to be the protector. And I had that notion, and my father probably inadvertently put it on me in a sense that he would have, we would have looked to him as, as the man of the house and, and the protector. And, you know, we'd jump if we were told to jump, kind of, you know, he was, he instilled discipline, as I said, the mother would have been working. And because she worked in the chipper, it was evening work. So the father would then be kind of, after his job finished, he'd be looking after us for the night. So, he, yeah, I suppose he kind of instilled discipline. And so, as I say, when he left, it, I felt the role was mine then to keep the house kind of going steady. And did that cause a lot of conflict with the sisters? Absolutely. They used to beat the <laughs> shit out of me. I'd take the remote control and I'd bring it to the shop with me and all, so they couldn't change the station. And yeah, they, they'd beat me up and they'd show me that they, I was outnumbered, always outnumbered. Yeah, that, what, what kind of impact that actually does that have then? on your long-term development because it sounds like in the beginning you tried to mimic your father's role when when he left um but then you've this influence of women 
your yeah. entire life. What what does that do then to, to your understanding of the world and life? It makes me, as as my girlfriend would say, uh, quite a feminine. She would say that I'm I'm more female than her, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably true. Um, I, I just, I suppose I always had a, well, I figured an understanding of women, though that's a, a complex I just I, I always got along with women then I always I could, my closer friends would have been girls in school and I tried I best I, I suppose at, at a young 13 or 14 to deny that by by engaging in, in violent activities what I would have probably considered manly stupid of me but just to be that that I'm a, I'm a boy you know I'm a real boy <laughs> and yeah the influence of women has now I suppose as I'm older has been amazing because I, I feel like much more empathy because of all the sisters and the, and the mother growing up. Yeah, it is like I, I'd say it does have an impact on your understanding of the world being around uh, women grown up like and just having that lens on life. And I think I think any man will probably be, be better for it. Yeah. You know, I think especially in them times when you're talking about that male perception that so many men felt the pressure of as well to be the protector, to provider. This is so clearly your role and this is so clearly and that's it's not really like that anymore in terms of those really clearly defined gender roles. Certainly not. I, I suppose I've been a long time in the system that I don't fully uh, recognise it but I do hear of it and see it a lot in terms of my old friends and my family in particular I suppose now in hindsight I realise that the mother was the true protector it was the mother mother never left you know the father left home okay he was you know they, they couldn't have made it work but the mother never left and I suppose in the early years it would have been that not that I blamed her but that I would have you know threatened her with the I'll go and live with me dad and she'd say go on see how long you last you know and <laughs> She was. It was true. I wouldn't have lasted very long without my mother. Yeah. And and did you play sport growing up at all? No, I tried. Um, a little bit older, but now I I kind of felt I had a bit of violence in me. I don't know where it stemmed from, but yeah. If I got a bad tackle, I would react quite angrily. Yeah. yeah. It might have been the fact that my sisters used to beat me up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I I was um I I kind of relate to that in a sense I had a huge anger in me in my teenage years um, that just was so uncontainable you know and when I think back of the things that would set me off like and you look back and you go what the hell was that about like and I do wonder if they're just trauma responses if they're I also had that thing that you have which I'm thinking about is that so you had sisters I just had had one brother and he was close enough to me in age and some of the larger families in the area all had each other so you wouldn't go near them like nobody would start on that family or that family because you knew that like the eight and nine and ten sisters and brothers would be out and that's it so I felt like sometimes I was trying to on my own be a family of ten be so scary and so angry that everyone would just go she's nuts don't even start on her and that that was a persona it wasn't really anything that felt natural to me it was definitely something I decided I had I had to do so that I wouldn't be a target yeah absolutely and I was similar because of my stature I was very small and the fact that I know brothers and I was quite camp or effeminate uh, I felt that I, I could have been picked on and I was for some time but I felt then as you say, that if I was violent enough, people would leave me alone. Mm. And it was that kind of, and you see it in some old movies, you like, make an example. Also, I would have been told on many occasions by the father when he was there, hit him back. If somebody hits you, hit them back. And, you know, I probably shouldn't say, but it would be a case of pick something up and hit them, you know. Yeah. And so I guess that violent, or that anger didn't cease in me throughout my teenage years and inevitably leaving, leading to violent conduct and the, the prison sentence I'm doing now as a result. 
Yeah. So um, a big theme that came out through the podcast was family and communication and how even though the person who's in the prison system, I suppose, is the one that's, say, you know, received a sentence or is being punished or held accountable for for something that they've done, a very much is not isolated to that individual because that individual is not separated from the people that love them regardless. What's it like um, trying to maintain family life um, with your with your sisters and your mom? But then also you mentioned you have a girlfriend and I, you know, and um, I asked you before, um, so, so many lads in prisons manage to pick up girlfriends while they're in prison. So I was just checking if she yeah. was, if you'd met her beforehand or, so you've obviously had a very, long relationship as well while uh, in prison and I'd love to kind of know what type of efforts do people have to do to maintain a, a close loving relationship like that when there's so many obstacles in the way it's not easy I suppose because of the the distance I mean I, I spent most of my time in a Dublin jail and you're, you're in Dublin you're never too far but you're really far and the fact that you're, you're, you're unattainable you know they can't just call on you they can't just walk into you whenever they please. And it gets tough in terms of, as you mentioned earlier, about education. Education changed me so much that I kind of felt for a short time, thankfully it was a short time, that I was drifting away from my family values, my, my kind of, the values of, of what we had going, growing up and, and the upbringing. And I don't know if I felt I was outgrown some people, old people in my life, and particularly around my area. And my sisters have a, a great understanding of the change I've endured and, and the time I've been away. But it's not been easy on them. I mean, my, my youngest sister was eight years of age, I think, when I first came into jail. She now has a six, a five, nearly six-year-old. I mean, it's, that's the reality is that my, my kid sister now has a kid while I've been away. So I've missed my younger sister's confirmation, 24, 16, all of these kind of important milestones for young women. And now I'll probably miss my niece's communion, hopefully not her confirmation that I'm near the end, but I've missed so much of my family's um, lives, I suppose. My, my eldest sister got married, I missed that. My nephew and my other niece then growing up and doing their leaving certificate, they were probably six and, and maybe four or five, respectively, when I came in. And do you, do you, do you think much then about... Um the, f the family life that you could have missed out on do you think where do you think if this hadn't happened where what do you think your life would be like now do you think you'd have children do you think you would have managed to step away from the the kind of roller coaster of you know violence or crime that you were on at the time or is it's just so hard to know isn't it it is hard to know i think if i had to surmise i would say that i would be probably be dead or in a bad way, in some way, whether through drugs, death, or, or violence, you know, I was just on that path. I had finished with my girlfriend prior to my um, my crime. So I don't imagine that we would have reconciled without the prison system, which is strange because in many ways prison saved my life. Just, there's been many strange moments throughout these conversations where people found safety for the first time in prison or found a talent or found an instrument or found connection to their families while in prison. And it's like, you know, there's a fine line between going, now we're not promoting the prison system yeah, as a solution. Yeah. What we're saying is that, isn't it awful that for some people, prison 
was a safer space than the very existence of their lives in the communities that they were living. Like that's a yeah. that's a big thing to think about. Oh, absolutely. And I suppose in a sense of the sentence I received, I had to engage. It was I was compelled to engage with psychology, probation, education. And it was within that that I made the change. Had I come in on, on just a shorter sentence or, or a lesser sentence, I might not have engaged. I might have continued into criminality with the guys in prison. But I got to stand alone, thankfully, through my sentence. And again, it's hard to thank the fact that I got a life sentence. But without it, I wouldn't have engaged. I wouldn't have, had, I wouldn't have been able to transform from who I was or who I thought I was or, or thought I should be outside with regard to criminal peers and, and kind of always trying to shape up to what people expected of me rather than what I was or, or what those closest to me would have expected of me. What have you learned about yourself then in terms of who you are? Really um, who you are without all the crappy stuff that's happened? I suppose I'm, I'm just a person and I try my best to be the, the best version of my, myself it's again it's not easy because I'm still in prison and, and prison in many ways is, is criminogenic in that you kind of have to keep a criminal personality because you're, you're surrounded by them you, you know you can't just be the soft guy who people might then target so changing in prison is very hard for the reason that you have to kind of still have a bit about you and hopefully it's something you can lose outside or maybe we'll never lose it we'll just learn to control it I, I, I often think in terms of Psychology, I've done a lot of psychology, but I've also read a great deal about psychoanalysis and stuff and, and internalising problems or externalising. And I kind of find, in no matter what my beliefs or values are now, what has changed mostly is the notion that I'm in no position to, to dish out what I would perceive as justice. So even if, when I was a kid, I thought violence is necessary, and it might have been in some circumstances, I was never in a position to, to dish out violence on, on my behalf or anyone else's behalf. So what has changed is that I, no matter what I feel in relation to a, an event or, or something that might have happened, it's, it's for, it's, or it's not for me, it's for someone else to, to correct it, you know. I can't be vigilante and think that I can sort this and that. And that was my problem in terms of my sisters, trying to look after them, you know. If, if a boyfriend was, was mean or, or violent towards her, I felt I had to make a show like and show them actually you won't get away with this and I would have done on, on a couple of occasions but to no avail I mean she loved them and I wasn't going to change that mm -hmm. Um moreover I just end up in in a world of trouble myself so it's trying to learn and I suppose prison has helped that justice is not for me to, to, to be given out you know and different versions of justice of course from the perspective of, of criminal justice to I suppose restorative in a sense of actually speaking and communication is often better than the alternative. How do you learn to communicate in a, in a place that's surrounded by lads who um, in t inside there's a lot of turmoil and a lot of emotion and in many ways they want to express that emotion but have never learned the language of non-violent communication. So trying to learn communication that is non-violent and is allows us to mediate or negotiate situations rather than use violence. How does a person um, in the prison system, in the way that you'd, you've done that, you've, you've learned how to engage with wards in the, with the backdrop of so many men that are f struggling to find the wards? How do, you, how do you do that? And it must take a huge amount of determination and strength to not 
dumb yourself back down or put yourself back in a box so you don't stand out in the way that you do now in terms of how just how good you are at communication mm. uh, absolutely and again we're down to the sentence and the, the therapeutic services as they're called you kind of learn how to internalize or how to express yourself rather than i mean a lot of the guys will react violently as you say because they don't know how to communicate or, or have never been in a position of communication that you know it might be perceived as weak to talk about it and that's a massive problem, but it seems to be changing slightly. There's a lot more, um, not just advertisement, but a lot more people coming out in relation to whether football stars or, or GAA stars about actually the struggle of, of trying to speak out when you're surrounded by, by men and that kind of, um, what's it, hegemonic masculinity in, in a sense of, you know, men are, are almighty and powerful and, and we can't be weak, which is nonsense. I mean, I grew up with a lot of women. I've, I've probably cried more than I care to admit. But in a sense of the sentence, again, it was compelling from, for me to engage, I had to completely engage. I couldn't engage for five years and then react violently to an altercation or something that happened on the landing, only to lose five years of, of groundwork. So it was a case of, and I suppose I, I had to look at myself to be in the position to take a punch. And that's something I couldn't have done as a kid or, or as a young man. Can you take a punch and, and I say, okay, I, I apologise, you know, if, yeah. I, if I was in the wrong, I took a punch and I, I'm sorry, I done what I done. Um, and I suppose I can, I could take a punch. I don't know if I could take a, a number of punches, but <laughs> I could take a punch and walk away if that's what somebody feels they need to do for, for to, to make themselves feel better. And it's often in that, that kind of process that somebody will realise, actually, this man doesn't want to fight me, you know, no matter what I throw at him. He understands he's in the wrong or maybe I'm in the wrong and... and I don't know, some people come around to learning that their own actions are, are not the necessary steps also. In relation then to, I suppose, I'm thinking about how we respond to situations without violence and something I'm always amazed at about in myself is when I realised that I could respond differently and that then fed into me responding differently again and again and again because I was like, so actually... Me not responding violently to this situation actually makes the situation end sooner. It's when I respond with violence and aggro and shouting that it, the situation becomes worse and worse. And then like, so when I realized that I could actually make this argument last a day rather than a lifetime, and that was in learning how to respond. Do you remember the first time you realized you could respond differently or did respond differently? Um, I probably don't remember uh, in terms of a particular instance. Just over time, I mean, when I come into the prison, I come in firstly on a small sentence and got familiar with prison. So when I came back for a life sentence, I had a bit of experience. Moreover, there was a, a very high number of people from my area, from Tala and Ballyfermot, from surrounding areas. And it was in numbers, I suppose, that power in numbers that, that I was able to start off by engaging within the system with education and skill and everything else, kind of never really worrying about, um, I suppose, violence or altercations because there were so many of us. That no one person was going to stand up and say, I want to fight with this guy. And over time, when something would happen, I would usually be in the school or I'd be somewhere else that I never ever got dragged into it. And I suppose once I started engaging with education and learning more about myself, and not just myself, I suppose about everyone in, in the prison system and everyone in, in my area and in the surrounding areas and what we come through and what we come from, what's almost what's expected of us. I thought, well, why can't I change that? 
and I begin to change. I got a dictionary left in, my girlfriend left it in, and I read it front to back umpteen times. I still read it. And I thought, you know, if I can learn how to speak, I can I can communicate with everyone and anyone, you know, whether that's the guys on the landing with me, whether that's my family at home, or whether that's the probation, psychology, parole services, all these people that I'm going to have to sit with. If I can understand their language and read their books, you know, mm-hmm. I can communicate much better with them and, and everyone else. Then. And I found communication on the whole, I suppose, including the, the theories and experts that speak about it. I just found it to be so rewarding um, in terms of being able to converse with people, but also being able to draw people to converse with you, you know. So instead of uh, an alternative altercation, you could talk to men and, and reason with them and they begin to see reason and, and understand it from your perspective. And I suppose in some of the courses we've done with relation to violence and violent conduct, it is an old saying that is very true that violence just leads to violence, you know. It's it's a constant. Catching. Yeah, yeah. And in that sense, I thought, well, if you can end something with communication, well, then it's got to be the best, you know. I think back at being um, like 12 and 13 and carrying a knife in my pocket, like, and I just think, I look at my girls when they reach that age and I'm like, how frightening it must have been, like, to, to for, at the time, I wouldn't have known I was frightened, but I was frightened, but I was, I was carrying knives because I was being threatened with knives and, Sometimes the threat wasn't real, but you never knew if it was real or not. So the fear of potential violence leads to violence. So the perception that something is going to happen. Absolutely. You know, sometimes it's not real. No, no. And there's the notion that, you know, even as you say, in a perception of violence in that you had an argument with someone in school and tomorrow they might jump me. So I'll I'll jump them first. You know, it was that kind of get in early and get it done. And again, I go back to to making an example of someone if, if you were violent enough. They either won't come back at you or it'll also show uh, to a number of other people, actually, this guy's a bit nuts. And that became a problem because as I grew up, I got more and more violent because I felt it was expected of me. I suppose I got friends because of my violent conduct and people would look to use that. So, well, this guy doesn't care, you know, get him involved. Mm-hmm. And in on the whole, I suppose, when I look at violence now... I think it was never really necessary. Maybe at a young guy and at a young age, I felt it was in that, that it was, it was a purpose, you know. I, I could be violent no matter how small I was. He didn't have to be a big, strong guy to be dangerous. Mm. And that was something I exploited and thought, you know, I can, I can roll with this. And it only ever caused me problems. Totally. And I think there's so much importance and there's so much there, I think, that young men who are caught in that kind of and I understand that there's young men their their surroundings are violent their the this the, the society and the structural violence is also just this invisible violence happening to us at a structural level that we're then responding and inflicting on each other yeah. <laughs> instead of in the right direction as yeah. to where the structural violence is coming from so there's so many things to unpack when we think of violence but I think I'd like to go back um to um maybe uh your relationships and the valuable relationships that you have. And um, I'd love to maybe hear a little bit more about how valuable your relationship with your girlfriend has been through this whole process. Um, you mentioned how um, you weren't together before you commit the crime, you had split up and then you have reconciled. And um, 
I can only, I, 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 I'm never going to speak on behalf of your girlfriend, but I can imagine the commitment on that side is huge. Um, there's so many factors to, to think about in terms of, you know, pausing one's life yeah. in solidarity with the person that you love um, who's in the prison system. Um, do you mind talking a little bit no, about, about absolutely that? absolutely not. Um, I suppose in terms of valuable, she's invaluable. She's just been amazing. We did finish prior to my offence and, and I I wouldn't blame her or, or, or the break, well, the break up to some extent. I, I went on a bit of a downward spiral after that and within four months of our breakup, I, I had committed a, a very serious offence and, and wound up in prison. It was during the prison sentence that she reached out or I reached out, well, I think... Well, one of us, we made contact anyway, and we begin to talk again. And I think it was in the realisation, or I, I, again, I surmise that, that we probably wouldn't see each other again, that there was a reconnection, and that actually, I don't know if I'm going to get out of jail, ever. And that kind of, it kind of brought us back in touch with, with the love we had. And we're very young age, we're 18 years nearly together, so... She was very young. She was still in school, just doing our leaving cert when I committed this offence. I was 20 years of age. So we were very young and we'd been together for some time. Through the prison sentence, I, I got out on bail then incidentally and I had about 10 months out on bail, including at Christmas, which was amazing. Though not so much for her because I had got out after the small sentence and known that I was facing a big sentence, I had a bit of a kind of party attitude and, and maybe put more time into my friends than I should have my family and girlfriend. Much that I regret now. But still, she stood by me. And I suppose it's it's bewildering how much she's been through and, and kept going with me. As you say, in terms of pausing one's life, she was 20, 20 when I was out in bail. And I mean, she's 32 now. So any kind of, you know, young girls are... are, are Kids, they often dream about being mothers and, and marriages and, and this age and that age. I mean, all of that would have ceased anyway because she was waiting on me, which, and I say waiting, it's, it's, it's been a wait, but we don't really view it as, as, you know, I'm waiting on him, I'm standing by him. She's just, she's there and, and, and I suppose as we look at it now is that it wouldn't be any other way. Okay, jail would be great if it was took out of it, but we're together and we are together because we love each other and... It's not that there's an alternative for me or for her. What do you dream of together when you talk about the future? Quietness, <laughs> strangely enough. Just just to be together, just to be us, you know. And I'm sure we'll have, I suppose, the opportunity of kids. If not kids, pets. We'll <laughs> what pets? What pets have you discussed? Go on. You're definitely discussing this. Dogs. dogs. Though mainly her discussions and I just, I'm in no position to argue. <laughs> Absolutely no position. If she wants a dog, she can have three. Um, it's just, you know, just to be together again. Uh, and we do have opportunities, thankfully, over the last few years with, with day release and stuff like that, that we do. But I have to share her with my family, of course. They're all sharing me for a day. And it's, it's, it's not particularly easy because I've got four sisters and they've got kids, my mother, my girlfriend, and then her family and old friends. I mean, so everybody is trying to get a piece of you on a, maybe an eight-hour trip home. So it's quite tough. And she looks forward to the fact that soon I'll be getting overnights into weekends and, and more release with, I suppose, the inevitable release eventually. So I suppose getting close and, and restarting almost is that we have to kind of get to know each other again. I've changed a lot. She's grown a lot and a lot has changed. And though we've been together for all those years, 
the communication is still now it's better now that I have a, a legal mobile phone um, as opposed to the, the jail phones which is 6 to 12 minutes a, a day so communication is much stronger now and that can cause difficulties as well for both of us because we're, we're that bit closer now but still so far apart so jail and relationships don't really go hand in hand a lot of guys will come in and say it's best to do it on your own and I can understand their perspective on that that it is actually you can put your head down and focus on you is that because they feel like a burden or because they don't want their heads wrecked I'd say it's a bit of both, bit of both. because you can be a burden on people especially you know if, if my girlfriend has been sick and, and in hospital and I can't do anything about that I can't attend to her I can't do anything the same if my family are sick or my mother but also then in terms of putting them out to come up and see you and well you're not really putting them out and they never feel as that but sometimes I have feel that as such you know as though they're going out of their way and they, they often even the notion that they would think of postponing something until I'm out and, and that shouldn't be the case you know their lives have to continue I made the mistakes and, and I'm paying for them they I suppose inadvertently and maybe vicariously will pay also but they shouldn't stop their lives just to wait on me because that would be unfair and it's very difficult for my girlfriend but she soldiered on through it and I'm sure a lot of our friends and a lot of people would think she was mad to do so. But we're near the end now and we can only hope that it's all worth it, that it has been worth it. We have to make it work. I have to make it work. <laughs> she can do what she wants and I just have to be obedient and, and grateful. <laughs> it's an odd dynamic though as well, isn't it? Like, Because obviously your partnership will be equal, but I'm sure you do go out feeling like, you know, it's, it's my time to now commit to you. You know, and, and I'm sure that comes with all sorts of trying to balance out the relationship to make sure that there's no, you know, yeah, because it needs to be an equal partnership, but also does baggage. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it'll be an equal partnership until she decides she's the boss. <laughs> and OK, I can't argue. But no, I mean, she is great and she completely understands the change I've endured and she supported it all the way. I annoy her a great deal because I suppose I'm, I'm intel I intellectualize too much. So when she might say something off the cuff, I'll look behind it and think, well, why or what or how? And she's saying, just just accept it for what it is. And I'm thinking, okay, it's just one of them times where I need to stop and be quiet. It can really bug her, but I suppose, and I, I mean, she's would surmise that I'm slightly autistic. And she's probably right. I don't know fully, but I'm only changing in jail. So the person I was prior to jail is not the person I, I truly was. It was it was a perception or a persona. It was a, a notion that I had to be this guy. So I never really knew who I truly was. And when I say I've changed, my mother often argues that I haven't changed. She says that the change was brief and it was the time. That's so powerful. That you went, yeah. Who you who the the, the behaviours that you were shown at the time. They, that's what was not you. Yeah, yeah. That's when you were, uh, yeah, unusual or, or not yourself. She said, but you, you, you're just now that's the man of the, the kid that I knew you were. The, the kind of, and it is powerful. It's kind, it's kind of emotional too. Um, but yeah, no, my mother believes actually you're not. You're, you're, you're who I knew you would be. Yeah. I think anyone listening um, to this conversation will kind of really pick up on, I suppose, the level of intellect and the level of education you've engaged in. Um and, you know, just exploring your thoughts, yourself, your mind, the world. It's very obvious. But I, I'd like to kind of go back a little bit to how, when, like what you've actually done educationally within the prison system. 
I know you've studied in the Open University, but you would have obviously done other bits before that, before you get to that point. Do you want to talk us a little bit through the, the education yeah. aspect? When I, start, I started school, as I, I say, as a life sentence prisoner, you, you are compelled to engage. It's the one thing that's expected of you when you come to parole and to progress, you have to have done something. And so the school was an easy one. I thought, you know, I'll go up and I, I'll do some home economics. I said, I'll get some good food that the prison service don't offer. So the, the school was mainly just for that. It was for home economics. So I got to cook. Uh, I say, I got to cook. I, I couldn't cook. My sisters used to cook for me. So I got to learn how to cook and bake. And I could then have the food I desired as opposed to the food that was being offered by, by the, the kitchens and stuff. So that was my kind of stepping into school. Then I thought I'd learn an instrument and I started playing guitar. So it was mainly for those purposes. I said, well, I'm engaging in school. And so that's what I'll do. But then one of the teachers, I suppose I, I got close to the teachers and, and we kind of build a relationship with these people over the years because you're spending so much time there. And they would then say, well, why don't you try this or why don't you do this? And so we began to look at, at VTAC, it was called. I think it's QQI now. But we, we looked at a few level twos and level threes to kind of just ease me into education. It was, I was unaware at the time, as I'm sure, maybe they weren't, maybe they had a plan for me, I don't know. But inevitably it would progress and they'd keep pushing me and keep pushing me. So I, I didn't realise that I was any good at school because I stopped paying attention when I was younger and I just stopped caring about education. So when I was engaging with the, the level twos and threes, I was doing okay. I didn't find any real problems or difficulties. I could read, I could write and it was... I suppose in a sense it was you read and learn what's on the page and then give your own perspective on it or, or stuff like that. So eventually then they asked me to do leave insert and I'd done my leave insert in English and history and I'd done really well in both so the head teacher at the time decided that I should do history again on a higher level and then go into the Open University. So I suppose all, all in all I have probably 30 if, if not a little bit more certificates through education and they, they will range from leaving cert and, and open university to a, a gym diploma and i take gym diploma and personal training i've done some music uh theory i've done courses on baking and, and cooking i got so certified it, in baking it's a degree is it that you get on the open university oh i got a degree in the open university yeah i studied for six years it's a part-time study because of our i suppose distance learning and i got a degree in sociology and criminology or broad social sciences really and you've wanted to do a master's or have you started the master's no i want to do a master's and i'm hoping that is available to me in the future at the moment where i am and covid is just i, I don't see it happening yet yeah and i mean i think your capacity to take on a master's a phd i think it's very very clear and i think it's so clear that the first time i met you was probably around 2017 or 2018 like it was a good few years ago now when I went to speak in, in Mount Joy um, to the school there and uh, you, were, you were challenging me, you mm. know, and chat, and I was like, I like him. Who's he? Who's that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and I loved it. Yeah. And I was only just beginning to learn about policies and, and I suppose politics on the whole, society on the whole. I suppose uh, I was maybe two years into my, my study then and that was force level study. So it was still kind of rudimentary. But by the time I got to sixth year, I, I wanted to challenge everyone, <laughs> you know, challenge the administration, challenge the state, challenge the governors, you know, everyone and everything. There should be more opportunities, I find, and I will advocate for them. 
Oh, well, advocate for the voiceless, as, as our head teacher calls them. Yeah, prisoners don't often have a voice, and so... Yeah, no, it's great. You, you stood out to me then, and then we met again when we shared uh, a, a platform. Um, we were speaking at a... European Conference on a, Prison Education. That's the one. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I still laugh at the... the do you remember the... the <laughs> do you remember the, the souvenir they gave out from that conference? Yeah. I was like, this is a weapon. <laughs> yeah, a big pencil holder. It was a pencil holder, yeah. but it was solid wood, right? <laughs> yeah. And a spike on the end of it. Was it. Like some Buffy the Vampire. Yeah, and I was like, going, who made this? And it was like, it was prisoners in another European prison or something, was it? I think or, so. I, I don't think sure it was, it was Ireland. Was... But I remember just feeling the going, oh my God, they've mm. made a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> and then they give it to me to bring <laughs> back to prison. Yeah. <laughs> it's on my desk still yeah. at work. I do, I remember that day well because it was somebody and my girlfriend kept kind of giving me the eyes and looking over her head. Somebody had recorded me and he had, because uh, they were asked forcefully, but I suppose you can only ask them to put any kind of camera or stuff away. And every time I looked up, I seen this big silver phone in my face and I thought, oh, sugar, you know, I'm going to be exposed here and put it. But thankfully, I, I've never heard that in, mm. on return, but maybe they just, maybe I'm in Spain somewhere, they're talking about <laughs> me on the news, but not in Ireland, thankfully. But uh, so we met there again then. And um, I think I had mentioned to you that, you know, as you progress, if there's ever any opportunities for to do, for us to do something together to reach out to me. And then recently you did reach out to me uh, and you were kind of, I suppose, thinking forward about how you would engage in, um, you know, um, gaining, I suppose, work experience and real life experience and and. At the time, you were looking for advice where all I was thinking was, I need to create a position because <laughs> that's what's like, because, you know, if, to have the, the level of intellect and life experience that you have and the willingness and uh, the ability to be able to take these big subjects and work with them quite confidently. Um, I just was in my head thinking my office would be so much more better placed Um in terms of the stuff that I work on. So even though I work on, say, prison reform or justice reform or restorative justice or addiction, all these things, I'm removed from them. I might care about them and my family and community might be, um, you know, impacted by them, but I'm not in the prison system. I haven't spent time in there. So I'm as close to it as probably most, closer to it than most policymakers, but I'm still at a distance. And for me what you bring uh, potentially to the work that I do, I felt it was important that we try and find a way to make that happen. And I suppose for the last few months, um, you have been engaging and carrying out, um, you know, experience with my office, but becoming, um, I suppose, or is a valued member now of the stuff that we do. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the last few months engaging in politics? Yes, it's been incredible. I mean, I've always kind of watched the Oireachtas TV and, and wanted to engage a bit more with policies and, and legislation because they often affect us in ways that, that the, the legislators won't see, you know. I mean, things can look great in theory and then in practice they, they can fail drastically. And I've seen it in the prison system over the years and I'm thinking, does nobody has any experience of prison? I mean, I mean, there's some governors and, and staff here 20 and 30 years and they don't have experience of, of a prisoner, you know, and that's... The reality is, and even though prison is an individual experience and unique to that individual, I still have my experience and through conversations I have the experience of, of people I've shared my, my prison time with. 
I was a, an active Samaritan or listener as we're called in prison for many years so I've known the struggles of prisoners I'm a peer mentor in prison so again I get to f see the prisoner struggles they tell me about them and they, they look in some ways for advice on, on from my end because I'm in a long time and they say well you've gotten so well and you've done this and done that and what I found when I look back now is that I have done very well in the prison system a lot of it was driven from myself as I say to educate myself and learn how to speak with the powers that be because it's it's those who will release me it's those who make the decisions on my life you were saying about being a listener and I suppose being able to get a full analysis and insight to the struggles of because in in a, in, a, in, a, in a way your experience is exceptional like some prisoners would look on I don't like calling them prison but some men within the prison system would look on and go I just never would be able to achieve that I can't do it or they wouldn't have any kind of faith in themselves or to be full of doubt or to be full of fear and all those things and um so so with those insights I suppose um even though your your progression or your situation in terms of the opportunities that you've taken because you, it's not just about opportunity being there it's about being able to recognize there's an opportunity and then having the wherewithal to know what to do with that opportunity you know and kind of if you can give us I, I suppose pick up where we left off then in relation to what you were saying about the role that you've played here and then how you've been able to I suppose match that then with policy and life yeah yeah, and look, I have taken my opportunities that were given to me. I was fearful, and, and of course, I still doubt myself. I mean, I, I could do a, a thousand-word essay and think it's the worst possible essay I could contribute and get good remarks. So I've always been my biggest, uh, I suppose, I, I, I doubt her. I, I doubt everything I do, but I do it. And it's through doing it that I come some way to gain a confidence in that actually I can do it and, and I have the ability... We're always going to be nervous doing it because there's often times, as you mentioned earlier, I was rolled out on a number of occasions as, as an advocate for prisoners and, and a voice for prisoners. But it's because, you know, uh, we'll roll this guy out and he, he makes a prison look exceptional as well, which is not always the case. I took my opportunities and I was given the op opportunity to do it by some management, um, particularly the education department and the head teacher there would roll me out and, and wanted to show that actually this guy can do it, anyone can do it and, and she didn't really do it in the sense of making her look good. She wanted me to look good and, and wanted to for show... To be a actually, role model. Yeah, yeah, and advocate for the lads. Whereas others might have had different intentions and I'm, I'm not suggesting they did but I never did know. Um, so I, I put myself out there and, and at times I felt... You know, I'm highly exposed and, and vulnerable because I'm still in Mountjoy Prison and, you know, you could get a slap for being too close to the, the admin and the management and, that's you know, thing, that's a reality, you absolutely. You all this politics to think of. Like. Absolutely. And I suppose in terms of policy, as I say, I've watched some policies get in the way of good practice. Some things in prison should be left as they are. Some things should be changed. And it's often coming from above. I mean, there's, there's headquarters of Irish Prison Service as well as the Department of Justice who really don't know much about the prison. I mean, we, we don't always get ministers come in and visit prisons, and when they do, they see a different side of prison. I mean, everything's cleaned up, everything is sparkled, it's like and everything's rolled out. like the inspector, like the school educationist inspector, or the hospital. Yeah, so or if like you're told everyone. in your kitchen that you're getting a, a review today, you're going to have it spotless, exactly. you know. So that's the reality, and so prison is a, it's an awful place, and it's an awful place for any man. It's, in my opinion, I think every one of us are, are deeply... And, and psychologically affected by it 
It's just whether we choose to uh, acknowledge that or ignore it. And I suppose we've probably been psychologically affected from our past and our upbringing anyway. And it's just another kind of chip out of the old mind, you know. But in policy, I want to be the voice of prisoners. I'm a life sentence prisoner and life sentence prisoners are some of the most precarious prison sentences in the state and in, in the world, I suppose, because there's no, there's no timeline. A life sentence prisoner could do 40 years in prison, 50 years in prison, and that's a reality. People think, and, and it's very annoying when I used to watch some of the older shows, it's changed now because the parole has changed. But this idea that seven years and, and the media are printing that tomorrow this man is eligible for parole, and the media are in a position of knowledge that they know this guy's not getting out tomorrow. Why don't he print and say he's eligible for parole, but it's going to be another five years before he gets even a, a look in. But they don't. They like to roll with the fact that, oh, he's eligible for parole tomorrow and, and a possibility he could be getting out or moving on, which is, it's never going to happen. And it's quite traumatising for people that are... are Everyone. Yeah, that are um, apprehensive about that person um, getting out, scared, yeah, worried, absolutely. haven't done their own healing yet in terms of being the victim maybe of that person. And Sarah Jane from the IPRT said at the end of her... Uh, chat with me that we need to fight information with information because yes. really you're only getting these like sound bites from media about the reality that seven years probation doesn't mean that that person's getting out and another inter another um person we spoke to in the in, on the podcast that's in Wefield prison he very much points to that that yeah. nobody gets out no after the seven 80s years or something. I yeah. mean it's it's forty years maybe since somebody I I surmise but it's definitely not been in, in the last 20 anyway that's for sure and I've watched a, a number of days you know the old parole board uh, and, and the, the head of the old parole board on a, on a Clareborn live show with a number of victims and the victims calling this out and looking for change and, and thankfully from a victim's perspective they've gotten change but the change I'm a bit worried about is that it's now a 12 year mark before you're considered for parole that's okay because we know as life sentence prisoners that we're not moving prior to 10 years, 12 years, and possibly even for some, they're going to look at 15. I think guys individually know or expect what they're going to do based around their case, their reputation, their past and stuff. And there's a number of factors, their, their behaviour in prison being one of them. I was exemplar and I, 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 I grabbed and used all the opportunities I could get. I put myself in a position for my second parole hearing at just over 11 years that he had no recommendations for me. Because I need, they, had, they had very little recommendations from the first parole hearing because I'd engaged with education. I'd done all my psychology, my probation work. I'd done, I suppose, some addiction work because there was drugs and alcohol in the lead up to my crime. Not in my crime or around my crime. I was very sober doing what I'd done. But I was on a downward spiral of drink, drugs and steroid abuse. So I took it upon myself to, to, to deal with that and to see addiction counsellors and, and, and attend some meetings in relation to that. I've done a number of courses pertaining to violence, anger management, and I studied I studied my own kind of theories of, of mental health, psychology, um, psychoanalysis, one of my favourite subjects to study, just so I can kind of ridicule those who, who truly believe in it. And I guess on, along the way, I, I begin to challenge everybody in relation to this notion that you're going to get out after seven years because you never, you never were and you're never going to move on after seven years. You're going to be in a closed jail for an, at least 10 years. And now it's looking like it's at least 12 years because of the new parole situation. But my biggest fear is that life sentence prisoners will be forgotten for 12 years. Because when I came into prison, it was a case of 
Do what you want for the four seven years, and the parole will set you straight. So kick him and take this and and you know be do do what you want. And in seven years' time, the parole will look at your disciplinary record and say, right, no more P19s, no more drugs, no more mobile phones, and they basically set you straight. And that was the case for some men, but they're they're putting another five or seven years onto their 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 term before they ever get another chance because seven years of of damage is going to take a, a right few years of recovery. So, it's nearly setting people up to fail if you're not absolutely. engaging them from the offset. Yes. And giving them, even if they don't engage fully at the offset, it's like that you should have every opportunity as many times as you like yeah. to engage. Because the ultimate goal is that we want men who have uh, engaged in violent crime to leave the prison system and no longer be a threat to society. Yes. So regardless of what we think about the crime that someone has done, the ultimate goal is creating safer communities. And you don't create safer communities unless you invest heavily in a person from the moment they go into the prison system to serve that sentence, would you say? Yeah, and even prior to that, I suppose, if you can invest in these communities that are are deemed unsafe, (laughs) because that's that's the first reality. But yes, within the prison system, I I engaged and I took it upon myself with the the advice and, and... knowledge of some older guys that were in the system then basically telling me listen i've done this for 40 years don't do what i done you know don't spend your life in and out of this system it's getting worse and it gradually has got worse but i i begin to really i suppose take on them words words of wisdom by older men older um i suppose criminals because we are criminals whether we want to say that word or not and they would warn me and, and say look I've seen it, and I've seen it with this lifer and that lifer and this life, and it all ends the same way. So try something different. So I did. I tried something different, and I tried for the from the first year, and I was no angel. I mean, I was still engaged in nefarious activities for one, maybe three years. I just be careful of how many I say, but I, I wasn't an angel. I was still breaching some rules and and bending them slightly, but I was engaging at the same time, and inevitably the engagement with education would supplant any engagement in, in criminality or whatever else that was going on the landing because I got so engrossed in what I was doing and so, I suppose, um, I, it just took over me. I was so busy. I wanted to do Open University. It's not something you can do on, on a, a day here and there, you know. It's something I had to engage in completely every day and putting my, my heart and soul into it. And uh, the rewards the rewards were significant. And, and I suppose sitting here now, I'm 12 years into my life sense, and I'm in an open centre the last eight months. Now, lifers sitting in Mount Joy now won't get that until they're over 12, which is a damn shame. Because some of them... I mean, I could have been managed, according to my parole here, in five years ago in an open centre. And that was the reality, is that I had been the best I could be five years ago. I'm still the same going now. I don't know if rehabilitation is something that, that gets better every year. I think there's a certain point, and, and you know, that's that's a new attitude, a new outlook. I don't know if it's regressive. I've yet to find that out. I hope I don't find that out for myself. But I know for some guys, if you're over 20, 25 or 30 years in the system, I don't know how much hope you have. You give up. Yeah. And without hope, I suppose we haven't got much else. I know. And it's uh, and, and and there's something uh, I always I always pull back from. Like hope will keep us alive, help us survive. But then I also have this real fear around creating hope in people's minds in case 
nothing happens. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I mean, there was a lot of teachers and people along the way that would tell me, you're going to do great from your four second pro here. you do great, you will. And they knew it, they've seen it. But I wouldn't have completely, I wouldn't have put my, my, my life on that saying, right, and I wouldn't have told my girlfriend, listen, next parole here and I'm out of here, because I don't know. And the one thing about prison in, and its precarious nature is that we never know. I mean, up until the point that you're on a bus or you're getting off the bus in Lockham House or Shelton Abbey, then you know, I'm here, I've done it. But that morning that you're supposed to be going, it could be changed, you know, and anything can get, there's a number of factors that can get in the way of something happening within the prison. It's most unfortunate. So I think as prisoners and as life sentence prisoners, we never truly give everything to, we'll always have hope and there is always a possibility of this or that, but we don't know, I suppose we don't ever commit to something that's a sure thing so that we'll be smashed. And I suppose I took an attitude a long time ago of having little expectations in, and I, I suppose people on the whole. As I've been in prison, I didn't want to put too much people uh, expectations or uh, I suppose expect too much of people outside in terms of, you know, I need this today or I need that tomorrow because their life has to continue. So if I get upset at the fact that my mother couldn't get to the post office to give money into me or to get me the shoes I wanted or something, I'm constantly going to be let down because anything could have happened, you know, if my niece was sick or something. There's so much that can happen to get in the way of things. And it's the same in here. So I've never really expected anything other than progression in due time. I didn't expect that I'd be in an open centre at 11 and a half years. I didn't expect I'd be in an open centre at 15 years. Whenever I get, whenever I get it, I'll, I'll have earned it. And I was kind of took that attitude. I'm, uh, I'm uh, just, I'm always surprised by the level of um, Buddha-like behaviour of, of, of all the men I've been speaking to and being able to actually like, you know, um, to, to live with those, I suppose, constraints, expectations, being able to respond to them calmly and, you know, which is amazing. Uh, I'm being distracted by the spider that keeps trying to jump off that wall behind you. <laughs> Every now and again, he kind of swings on the web. Um, well, leave him. No, yeah, leave him. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. Um, it's just that he keeps doing little acrobats and I'm kind of like, <laughs> where's he going? <laughs> but, uh, so to come back then just slightly um, in terms of the work and the interests that you have, I know, I know you've wide interests like social policy, psychology, criminology, all these things that you can really contribute to society. Um, and you've been contributing to, to my office. We've done stuff on the survey internally on, on people's understanding of people in the prison system. You've worked on the um, the commencement matter on, on youth justice and um, you've been absolutely brilliant in that space and we only get to do a small fraction of what what we can with you because obviously you're you're you are where you are um, but given the opportunity I know having um, been able to f like engage um, full time in a position of being able to address policy both within the prison system but also like you said you know how intervening before it ever gets to the point of needing the prison system at all and I'd love to know um like have you taught much about how all your learning both from your experience and your life but also educationally what you think you could give to help try change 
the narrative of society and the investment in communities like ours? I'd like to think, I'd like to start by trying to look at my area and many areas like it, where unfortunately, and it is most unfortunate, a guy like me will be revered for the jail that he's done, you know, held in high esteem and regard for killing a man and doing lots of jail. And young kids look up to that in a nonsensical way. Because in those areas, crime is glamorised and, and young kids... I mean, even as young as, as 6 through 10, have aspirations to be a criminal because they see the older guys as criminals and the life they have, or the, the, I suppose, the, how the life looks, you know, externally. But internally, every criminal is, is eating himself up. It's really, really tough because you have to constantly battle against your own, um, I suppose, you're juggling your, your values from a young, as my mother said, I, I changed at that point. Not before, not after. So it was that change. So I'm changing who I initially was to be someone else. That's a battle. And then you have the concern of other people around you, friends. I mean, this whole... And, and it always makes me laugh when people say, I, I have to be loyal to me mates. There's no loyalty in criminality. I mean, your friends are the ones who kill you in the end. It's it's crazy to think that there is. And so I want to show the kids that this is, this is the reality. And I'd like to show the young guys from 5 to 10 and 15... That even if you get a nice pair of runners and a nice car and a lovely house, it's going to be very transient and that it's not going to last. It's going to come crumbling down and you'll either end up in the ground or in Mountjoy prison. And that's, that is the reality is that it doesn't last. It is the, it is the reality. And I think for many of um, like the, the men and sometimes women, but mostly men that I've worked with over the years, whether it be in the addiction sector in communities or in homelessness or in prisons, but also my own friends who I, who I love, who, who I've grown up with. And none of them uh, are happy that this is where they are. And they talk about the fact that, um, you know, they were 10, 11, 12 when they first start engaging in criminality or selling drugs. And that actually they wish that they weren't now in their 30s and 40s still doing the same thing. But they feel they have very little option but to continue, even though they're having sleepless nights, even though they don't want their children and their nieces and nephews turning out the same. I think sometimes people think that people in their communities all want their loved ones to be like us. And that's so far from the truth, like, you know. Absolutely. And um, most of the people that I engage with are like, if I could could have done something differently, I would have. But how do I now provide for my family? How do I now provide uh, for myself or pay for a home or pay rent and, and walk away from criminality, even though it makes me miserable and paranoid and taking sleeping tablets just to put my head on the pillow at night? Um, how do you tell an employer like, <laughs> oh, I don't I've Well, I've, I've just been on a, a career break for the past 25 years or I've never had a job or so there's not really much conversations, I don't think, at a structural level or a policy level to understand the obstacles in the way for men that reach certain ages to actually exit criminality. And I do you think there are conversations we, we need we need to be having while giving yes. criminals an amnesty to have them? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, and it's it's highlighted now in a particular the desistance theories. I mean, it's very popular nowadays with criminologists, um, Ian O'Donnell, uh, UCD and stuff. So it's this notion that sooner or later we do desist from crime. It just kind of teases out over years whether it's true maturity or tiresome it's it's one or the other you grow tired you get older and it's just past you 
So there is this this conversation has to be had about actually, yes, we can desist, but are we desisting from crime to just, you know, hang around, grab the labour and just become a burden on society in other ways? That's not what we'd like. I'm sure most uh, former criminals or former prisoners want to work, but it's getting the opportunity. And another thing I want to focus on in, in terms of policy and change is giving them the opportunities in every sector, you know, don't just force us into jobs that befit our criminal past. I love the idea of working with you and going forward in that field because this is something I've chosen and my, my experience and my education will aid that. But there's guys in here who will build you a house but they never have that opportunity. They will be asked to work in, in care after prison or, or pathways or one of these, you know, because oh, you've, you've spent so long in prison, your experience is great. And it is great. But what if he wants to be a builder? What if he wants to be an electrician? Or, you know, if other employers give him the opportunity to be who he was prior to the crime? Proven, firstly, that he has changed and, and desisted from crime. Them opportunities should be available. And there should be, and, and again, a question I'm looking into in terms of going forward is getting more people involved in the prison system. Like, uh, there's a, apparently a high demand in the construction sector at the moment. And yet there's a high number of prisoners who are uh, plumbers, electricians, brickies. I mean, they might have had a, a bad time after the, the crash of 2008, wound up in the prison system for five or ten years through drugs and other uh, activities. And now they're out and haven't got the opportunity to go back into work. So, I mean, I think we have to look at, uh, as I suppose your podcast is highlighting, the person behind the prisoner. You know, take the, the, the person from the prisoner and give him the opportunity not worried about his past, and not worried about the media coverage, because it's usually on the back of snide comments and, and, and reports that, that we will say, oh, no, well, I can't have him working because, you know, I'm going to get slated in the morning by the other guys or the media. And It's just this whole, the court of public opinion, I guess. If I was an employer, I'd hire anyone, as long as I knew they could prove to be a good worker. Um, what they do behind that is, is irrelevant to me. And what they have done in the past is irrelevant to me. As long as I can guarantee uh, I suppose their future is, is with me doing what, what the job is, is necessary well then it shouldn't be a problem mm. and that's to get to that point then is if Ireland wants to champion a system that's rehabilitative society needs to also allow for that to be um, and it, we should be celebrating it not criticising it we should be going this is where all the efforts within prison to help someone re-socialise, reintegrate. Here's all the work that has happened. And here's all the people that are now working in all these different sectors getting on with their lives. Yeah. And that should be the goal. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, recidivism is not a word I like. It's not. But in reality, a guy who comes back to jail is usually because he's nothing else to do. And some come back just for the warmth and, and, and food of the prison because of the situation we have in terms of housing, homelessness and everything else in society. Everything that's in society, that's a problem in society, is reflected in the prison system. All of us come from particular areas of criminality, of, of poverty and, and difficulties. And that's, I mean, the notion of prison as rehabilitative should be favoured among everyone in society. Because even though we come from particular places, we'd be damn sure we upset everyone in every place in society when we're engaging in certain activities. So to think that giving this guy a maximum punishment is going to stop the next guy is completely, it's, 
it's stupid in my eyes because it hasn't worked for generations. It's not going to start working now. Yeah, it didn't work with the guillotine either. No, and that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, an eye for an eye is, is, is no good. I mean, prison and, and life sentences are, as you say, if you want to lynch the man, won't stop murder. You know, and it's not a deterrent for others. It might be a deterrent for me. I'm not going to come out and commit the same crime again. I've learned a valuable lesson. Jail has took a lump out of me, as it has many men who have done the sentence I've done. It, it's tiresome. You have to really work hard. I had to work extra hard because of the change I wanted. But it, it will stop me, and maybe that's rehabilitation in a sense, but it's not going to stop the next guy. So there has to be something looked at in terms of a guy coming in for 10 years for committing this crime doesn't have to do what I've done, doesn't have to change, will get out and probably do the same thing again. He might get 15 years the next time, but his friends around him and the people behind him will still commit the same sentence. Or the, the same crime, sorry. It's, it's just on so we, we need to figure out how to make the individual learning a societal Absolutely. change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have to change the nature of how we look at society and how we look at particular places in society to stop kind of... I don't want to say coercing people, but when you come from a particular place or when you are in a particular mindset, you kind of feel that you have to behave like that. And that's why I felt that a young guy, I had to behave a certain way because it was expected of me. And I mean, whether you're in the Shannon or whether I'm walking into that kind of lifestyle myself, I'm always going to feel like I don't belong and that I have to behave as though they would like me to. And, you know, and it's something I, I raised with you before is I changed everything about me, including my vocabulary and how I speak. And that was my, I suppose I wanted to do, but I wanted to do it off the back of being able to understand and speak to anyone I met in society. To have a small bit of knowledge on everything, whether it's banking, psychology, I, I suppose sociology had a bit more. But everything so I could start a conversation and then, I suppose, incur more learning. I can bring enough questions to ask them and, and them to inform me. So I could talk to anyone in any profession. And that was something I desired purely just to make a good go at my life. I figured that would be... I mean, that's, that's, that's brilliant because it comes up in smaller ways with so many of the people that we've spoke to is, you know, just wanting to advocate for yourself or being able to exercise your rights, recognise your rights, being able to engage. And that gives you some sense of control then that you are not, even though you're in a controlled setting, you can at least engage with whoever you have to encounter. And that in and of itself is empowering. Yeah. And unless all our communities can engage in society in that way, well, then we're going to continue to be failed because society is telling us that we need to hit this success mark. And if we don't hit that success mark, well, then we're discardable. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Final question. OK, so some of um, uh, you're known, I suppose, for having lots of books in your in your um I suppose cell but let's say room um or maybe not let's let's call it what it is and stop trying to dress dress up cell. it's a prison cell <laughs> even if I have the key to my own yeah. or it's still locked it, at night <laughs> it's a prison cell um and you're known for having lots of books um and you mentioned uh reading the dictionary many times back to front um but maybe we'll just finish on I'd love you just to tell me your favourite thing about books or a book. Well, the dictionary is my favourite book, strangely enough. Um, well, I suppose words and, and how words can be so powerful, emotive, and how it can raise us from despair to, to a position of knowledge, to, to open our mind to challenge the elite, to challenge the administrations, to 
I mean, I read The Spirit Level, which is a very interesting book, and kind of gave me the notion to actually, you know, why should I sit down and take the kind of oppression and, and crap I had to endure? Why not stand up and challenge? And there's many books that do that to me. I've read a lot of um, philosophical, I love philosophical works. I love Machiavelli's Prince, though. A lot of madmen do love that, so, you know, it's just one of them. Um, but even the Bhagavad Gita, which is a, a yoga book, and it's it's ancient Eastern philosophy, so anything Buddhism, yogi, and just just books, I mean, just to read and, and to gain knowledge. And I think there's a way of learning that that can't be taught, you know, and, and sometimes when you're reading a book, and a lot of guys are deterred from the fact that I won't understand it. And so that was, again, the purpose of the dictionary. To stop the book and, and you know find a word and, and then write it down and over time when I I'd have myself covered in words I'd words and their meanings and then I'd have synonyms underneath and you know so I could say that but I can also use these ten other words in place of it you know and it's still tricky I still see some words or I've I've studied some words and I read them and I'm thinking I'm probably not saying that right <laughs> you know and so but not being the afraid to say them anyway. Yeah, so even if you're corrected, you know, it's tomato, tomato, kind of, leave me alone. At least I'm trying. But you know the meaning and the understanding. That's all that's important to me. But over time, I then would say, so how can I put it into a sentence? So it's, it's a bit, I mean, I was talking in a mirror a lot, or you're talking in a cell, you're engaging in conversations with yourself. Just in how you would word, and you pick it, like if I'm watching the Shannon or the Oireachtas, and I think, right, pause it here and give your response to what he said. Amazing. And so I then figure, right, so I'll respond, and I'll respond in my, myself, of course, and the hatch is open, like, you all right? Yeah, grand, you know, just, you kind of... I'm just giving yeah, a Shannon speech. You get a little bit bashful then, you're caught talking to yourself, you know, but no, it was just by practising, by, by writing, reading, talking, you know, and kind of just visualising, and, and visualisation is a big thing now, and in everything the psychology are doing with prisoners, and life science prisoners in particular, the mentalisation and, and visualisation. I suppose in terms of, and I don't really like that the, the idea that past behaviour predicts future behaviour. I think it's it's bullshit. But I understand the the, the necessity to mentalise and visualise that actually if I'm in that position again, how will I react? I'd like to think through many years of, of rehabilitation and, and everything I've went through with education that you could put me in any situation in the future and I won't make that same mistake because I have the experience of consequences and, and, and of distance from family, of, of loss, and everything that came as a result of my sentence, that no matter what situation you put me in, I'm not going to make that same mistake. I'm not going to commit that same offence. This notion um, by psychology that, that if I was in this particular position on this particular night and all this particular stuff behind me, that I would then commit this offence again, I, I, I think it's nonsense. I think over time and everything I've learned, and I'd like to put everyone else in that regard. I don't know, I can't speak for them, but I'd be damn sure that I wouldn't do it again. So I think a lot of things has to change in terms of the actuarial science of psychology in prison. And actuarial meaning risk assessment and risk management is predominantly around risk. And that causes problems for me and for many like me because we have to be careful as to what we say. And I benefited greatly from reading the dictionary and learning how to speak that I could articulate myself and they would know exactly what I meant because I said it clearly and coherently. Some guys can't. Some guys might show more emotion when they're asked a particular question. And it's in that emotion that they might look slightly irate. And then it's kind of, oh, well, he gets angry when I mention his, his girlfriend or his, you know. And that's, you know, it's just because he can't express himself the way he'd like to. But that's a major risk going forward. So all the reports then are based around the risk that he's a possible this or a possible that. 
It's very yeah, dangerous. I think that is so interesting and so true. I think there's so much more to communication than even what we've learned in terms of vocabulary. We need to have people assessing people that understand uh, that emotion is also communication, but in a positive way. It means someone cares. It means someone is passionate. It means they might not have the words. And you need to be really trauma informed before you sit down and engage with anyone, because sometimes you know, you, you as the person either on the parole board or in psychology, you could be the one that's in the wrong here, triggering that person with being either dismissive or using particular language or not understanding the particular person's life and history. And that actually you need to assess how you've just engaged, not yes. how he responded, you know, and I think that that's very important. And I think to finish on the fact that I think when you do leave here, um, and after you have some family time <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, I think you have a massive contribution to make to society. I think the justice system, the prison system, policymakers would be foolish to not be seeking out to be working with you for you to be um, developing policy, but also being able to be an advocate to those men that can't find the words that you have, you know, to have you as their mentor and their teacher while also contributing to the policies that surround their lives. And I just think you have a a really big contribution to make. And I hope society accepts that and sees that and allows you to do that because I think we would be foolish to not take the level of uh, insight, understanding, commitment and passion and uh, awareness and education that you have and not put it to good use. So I just want to say well done and thank you. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully. Here's hoping society have a change in heart and, and accept me for what I am rather than what I was or might have been. Every day now, every night now, all of my life now has been about you. Conversations on the Margins is a limited series podcast produced by me, Lynn Rowan, and the team at Alfonso Films, in partnership with Goaloud and funded by the Rhone Trust, with the support of the IPS and Governor Eddie Mullins. Sound on Location was recorded by Dave Fannin and Rob Moore, with editing and sound design by Kieran O'Connor. The music used in this series is written and performed by students in the Educational Centre in Weefield Prison. I would also like to thank the principal and teachers in the Education Centre of Weefield Prison for facilitating this podcast and for all your support. Finally, and most importantly, I would like to thank each and every one of the men who sat down with me, opened up and had a very real conversation. I know it wasn't easy, but I'm very grateful. Conversations on the Margins is brought to you by Go Loud. Go Loud is the home of Irish podcasts. Whether you're looking for a laugh out loud comedy a gripping true crime story or some practical life advice. The Go Loud app is the place for you.